Hello, it's 11th of May 2020 and this is episode 139 of Scavenger's Horde, a Star Wars podcast. I'm Rachel. And I'm Kirsty. We're here to deliver a regular rundown of Star Wars news, analysis and commentary, with a focus on the sequel trilogy and the future of the series. And how has your week in Star Wars been, Rachel? Pretty eventful. Um, (laughs) We obviously had um, Star Wars Day which is obviously like the day, apart from film release days, because yeah, that's obviously next level, that we all come together to think about Star Wars and celebrate Star Wars. So I celebrated in my own little way by watching the original Star Wars again, um, which also ties into the main topic today, because we're going to be talking about the original novelisation of Star Wars by George Lucas, (laughs) Alan Dean Foster. And yeah, that was really, really nice because sometimes it is just a lovely feeling to go back to the beginning and remember how it all started and that core DNA of Star Wars that made me fall in love in the first place. So obviously Force Awakens, it took my love of Star Wars to like a completely different level from the original Star Wars. But the original Star Wars is where it started for me as a little kid when I was watching it starry eyed for the first time. And yeah, it's quite nice to reconnect with that. Yeah, I agree. I've really enjoyed reading the novelization this week. Obviously, we'll get into it later. My first Star Wars was Return of the Jedi, so I have a very different experience of the story. Nice. Um, it means the Vader father reveal was totally spoiled. But... Oh, dear. Yeah. <laughs> it was just on TV, so I started watching it, you know. Like, I, I feel like that's actually a really good point. I couldn't tell you precisely when I saw which film. I feel like I quite easily could have seen the sequels after I saw the original Star Wars too. Um, but you know what it's like when you're a kid, you don't have clear memories of things. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah, Ewoks probably form a stronger memory in my mind <laughs> than a lot of the original Star Wars. But watching the original Star Wars does still make me feel like a child. So, yeah, it still works in the way that matters. Uh-huh. Yeah. Uh, did you do anything on May the 4th itself, Kirsty, or was life happening? Uh, well, <laughs> life in air quotes. Life is stuck at home. <laughs> Yeah, um, I did watch the the new Mandalorian behind the scenes documentary on Disney Plus. Oh, nice! See, I've heard good things about that. Yeah, the second episode is out now, but I've only had time to watch the first. But I did really enjoy it. It was great to kind of hear from all of the directors and John Favreau about what they wanted from the series and how Filoni came to work with George on the Clone Wars and they've kind of moved on to the Mandalorian now. Um, yeah, it was just. It was really interesting. Like I've, I've been waiting for behind-the-scenes stuff about that series. So recommend that if people haven't watched it yet. And apart from that, we had our exciting news on May 4th. Yes, no, we did. Um, I believe, I don't really understand iTunes, to be honest. I'm a bit of an old person when it comes to it. But from what I understand, we ended up on the front page of iTunes. <laughs> Is that correct? Yeah, so I'd seen Apple Podcasts tweeting out a few days before May the 4th. They were asking people, what are your favourite Star Wars podcasts? And I saw that people were tagging us, which was very nice. Thank you to everyone who did. Um, But I didn't respond because a lot of my favourite podcasts had been listed anyway. Mm. And I hadn't quite twigged what they were doing. So they'd obviously like counted up how many times each podcast had been mentioned and then put them into a chart of like, these are your most 
popular podcasts and and we were on it which is very very nice thank you to everyone who tagged us yeah i must say it gave me a little thrill to see that post from the (laughs) itunes twitter account or the apple one i'm not sure which like with the icons of us and i think what the force and sky talkers and yeah it was a very humbling moment so yeah thanks guys it's really nice to know so many people like and enjoy our little show so thank you very much yeah, I wonder if that means we have any new listeners this week. Oh, yeah, <laughs> no, we do. Hello, new listeners. It's nice to have you. We hope we don't scare you off. <laughs> I was going to point out that our intro says that we talk about the future of the series, but this week we're very much not doing that. <laughs> we're talking about the, the distant past. Yes. So. Now, that's one of the dangers of following a script, because you just read it out like a pre-programmed robot without actually thinking about what you're saying. And it's like, yeah, this time we're actually not doing that. <laughs> so yeah, yeah just for we, warning. we usually do <laughs> i guess the news section will cover the future of it because we have some exciting announcements to discuss exactly yep so we'll get to those in a moment um just before we do move on to the news though i want to ask for some listener contributions because basically coming up in our plan for episodes is we want to do a big tribute episode for ray very much like the one we did for rose a few months ago so what we'd really love is for people to send through their stories about what Rey means to them, what it meant to see a female Jedi as the protagonist of a Star Wars film on the big screen. All those sorts of feelings. We want to hear about them. So yeah, if you have a Rey story of your own, please do email us at scavengershorde at gmail.com. And yeah, we'll hopefully be able to read it out and then perhaps have a tiny bit little cry about it when we get <laughs> overcome with emotion. So yeah. Yeah. Definitely remember crying during the Rose episode because people were sharing lots of lovely things. Yeah, exactly. Hopefully happy tears because I think the Rose ones were definitely happy tears because it was just so moving to hear those stories about how powerfully people felt about that character. Mm-hmm. So yeah, we really hope that people get in touch and yeah send through your stories we really look forward to hearing them okay right so let's move on to the news um would you be able to read out the first story which is a special official announcement from (laughs) the icon that is stars.com and yeah this is about some new projects and i think these have all been rumored at various points but if they're reporting them like this they seem to be pretty stable so if you could read out the report kirsty that'd be great yeah, I think we mentioned these last week as rumours, mm-hmm. or last episode, sorry. Um, but it's really, really exciting to get it officially, officially confirmed. So, Academy Award winner Taika Waititi to direct and co-write new Star Wars feature film for theatrical release. Oscar nominee Christy Wilson Cairns to co-write screenplay with Waititi. Academy Award winner Taika Waititi, who recently won Best Adapted Screenplay for Jojo Rabbit and directed the widely acclaimed first season finale episode of The Mandalorian on Disney+, will direct and co-write a new Star Wars feature film. Joining Waititi on the screenplay will be Academy Award nominee Christy Wilson Cairns, 1917, Last Night in Soho, who received a BAFTA Award for Outstanding British Film of the Year on the three-time Oscar-winning film 1917. In addition, Emmy-nominated writer Leslie Headland, Russian Doll, Bachelorette, is currently developing a new untitled Star Wars series for Disney+. Headland will write, executive produce, and serve as showrunner for the series, which adds to a growing list of Star Wars stories for Disney's streaming platform, including The Mandalorian, now in post-production on season two. Uh, I'm going to stop there because they're just kind of going over the series that we already know about. Mm-hmm. Uh, oh, release dates for both projects have not yet been announced. 
Because mm-hmm. as always, they play their cards close to their <laughs> chest. Yeah, they don't want to commit to anything too closely right now, which is I guess sensible. they can't, yeah. Don't know what's going on with production schedules and everything, so... Yeah, no, coronavirus has thrown all the production of film and TV into chaos, so... Yeah, even if it weren't just Lucasfilm being Lucasfilm and like hopping about like crazy, they wouldn't be able to announce firm dates, I don't think. So yeah, I'm super psyched about all this news. Obviously, none of it is a huge surprise because I think most, if not all of these names had been rumoured for projects in the last few months. Um, And yeah, they all seem like really exciting picks to me um i really love tyker's work um i think hunt for the wilder people is probably my favorite film by him and that is just a lovely slice of it sort of defies genre it's very hard to describe because it's very silly and slapstick but also has this real tender heart to it so i'd really recommend that people go and watch that for a great example of what he can do um, what we do in the shadows is hilarious and yeah I'll let you talk about Taika for a minute Kirsty otherwise I'll just go on a long spiel no I kind of feel the same way I love his sense of humour um, I guess it remains to be seen how much of that they'll let him inject because his episode of the Mandalorian has definitely got I mean it opens with that funny exchange but um, yeah I mean uh, people have opinions about his Thor movie mm. like it, I think it is kind of divisive because some people feel like it breaks away from the existing four movies and other people like that for that reason. So I, I don't have strong views because I'm not... I, I like it for what it is and I'm not like, they all have to have the same tone or whatever. So um, yeah, I just, I, I enjoy his movies. I haven't seen anything from him that I don't like. So yeah. Um, have you seen Treasure Rabbit? No, I haven't. So I can't comment on that. Yeah. Like, so that is a really interesting movie. And I'd definitely recommend watching that for a more serious film that he's done. Um, It obviously still has comedy and there's lots of farcical elements to it. But there's real attempts to grapple with more mature, serious themes and ideas. Um, And I don't feel like all those attempts are completely successful in Shoujo Rabbit. That's a movie I could have a long discussion about. Oh, okay. Yeah, like I like what he's aiming for, essentially. And I feel like his being partnered with Christy Wilson Carnes um, is really promising because 1917 was amazing. And a big part of that, I think, was the scripting because that film had to be very meticulously planned out. And credit for that must be given in large part to the screenwriter because, yeah, she obviously played a huge role in shaping the structure of that film and making it hit the right emotional beats so yeah again if you haven't watched 1917 that's a film i unequivocally cannot recommend highly enough it was one of the best films of last year i haven't seen that either i didn't see a lot of the movies that came out in the second half of 2019 (laughs) for understandable reasons (laughs) Uh, but i will get to it and i hear it's very good yes yeah and i'd also say for a war film it does some interesting stuff with like femininity and like the male characters relate relating to the feminine which i think is quite interesting and i have ideas for how that sort of concept could do star wars favors as well and that's obviously like reach 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 because using a particular storytelling device in a war movie doesn't mean that's going to crop up in a star wars movie but it just shows a particular talent for infusing some deeper stuff into the character work and the development that I think would be really exciting if it were brought into Star Wars. So yeah, I think we'll be talking more about this basically is what I'm saying. 
Okay, I will put them on my list. Awesome. They, they were kind of already there because I, like I said, I've enjoyed everything else that Tiger's done. So I wanted to watch JJ Rabbit. And there's been lots of buzz around 1917. I just haven't had the time. Of which course. I know sounds silly in the middle of a pandemic. <laughs> you have a baby, Kirsty. It's completely understandable. Well, lots of people have babies. So. <laughs> <laughs> oh I'll gosh. get to it. Yeah. <laughs> Did you want to talk about Leslie at all? Have you watched any more Russian Doll since last episode? Yes, I absolutely want to talk about Leslie. Um, I've watched, I think, five episodes of Russian Doll now, and I'm really digging it. It's a really fun, inventive series, and I like the way it keeps on spiraling and building, and the way they keep on throwing new stuff at you. There's stuff I want to talk about that happens in Russian Doll that is amazing, and I like messaged Kirsty about something that just happened in an episode <laughs> I watched yesterday. It was like, oh my god, this made me laugh so hard, but it made me feel so bad for laughing. No, it's it's dark humor. Yeah, it's so sharp. Exactly. Like, you're absolutely meant to laugh, even though you're like, God, this is morbid. <laughs> that's the entire premise of the show so yes. you're good <laughs> yeah no not gonna beat myself up about it um but yeah i'm really digging the show really enjoying it and obviously the show isn't completely leslie's baby she's a co-creator on russian doll so i'm not sure exactly what she's injecting into that show but if anything coming close to the vibe of russian doll could be transported into the star wars galaxy i would be very happy and yeah, how do you feel about Leslie Kirsty? So I know you've branched out a bit and seen more of her work, haven't you? Yeah, well, I was reading some interviews with her about Russian Doll and she's very modest. So she kind of sounds like she's downplaying the level of her contribution. She's like, oh, well, Natasha and Amy had these really solid ideas and I just came in to polish things up. Um, so I, I'm not sure how much to trust that or whether she's just kind of, yeah being classy and letting them take a lot of the credit so. <laughs> yeah sure uh so I, I have to watch more of her stuff. i haven't seen bachelorette so um oh, what was the name of the movie oh sleeping with other people i watched that one and it, it definitely had like a wry sense of humor to it but it, it wasn't it's not really the same as russian doll at all it's more like a a rom-com that uh, you know has those recognizable elements um whereas russian doll is pretty pretty out there yeah so um, but you know that shows versatility and it, it kind of means as you say that it's not like we're going to get Russian doll in space as, as appealing as that sounds <laughs> I think she'll try and do something new because of course people would want to try and do something new so yeah it's exciting to think about what she could do because she really could do anything yeah like I love these announcements but I also hate them because obviously it's like yay there's this really exciting person involved in Star Wars but at the same time, it's also like, we have no idea what they're doing, but sure sounds good. Keep it up. <laughs> yeah. I think people maybe thought that about, you know, when Ryan Johnson was announced all that time ago. Yeah. Like, people who have, like, a, yeah, a few very impressive credits, but, like, they're, they're not like a J.J. Abrams, you know? Like, they're not like a big titan. So, um, yeah, it's hard. it's hard to say, like, what level of their own unique style is going to be kind of absorbed into the Star Wars that they create or if it's going to be a bit more the other way around like how do the how do the two kind of converge to create something new and unique yeah I'm fascinated to see what they come up with like another point worth mentioning is that Christy Wilson Khan she's collaborating with Edgar Wright on his new film Last Night in Soho oh really yeah okay I didn't know that was him yeah have you heard the synopsis of this film Kirsty because it's pretty amazing nope 
So, a young girl passionate about fashion design is mysteriously able to enter the 1960s where she encounters her idol, a dazzling wannabe singer, but 1960s London is not what it seems, and time seems to fall apart with shady consequences. Oh my god, that sounds like our kind of thing. I know. <laughs> I'm so excited for this. Like on my now rather pathetic looking list of most anticipated movies for twenty twenty because obviously <laughs> coronavirus has fucked everything up. Yeah. Um, this was on the list because yeah, I'm really excited for it and again it just shows incredible versatility, you know, to go from oh. writing the screenplay for a, a big traditional World War One action movie to doing something weird and eccentric and trippy like this. So, yeah. Both of those things sound very Star Wars. Yeah. Because Star Wars encompasses all these things. You know, you have something like Rogue One and then you have The Mandalorian or The Holiday Special. Yep. Exactly. We like The Holiday Special here, guys, if you're new, just to warn you. Yep. No, we do. You've got to accept Holiday Special apologism in this house, I'm afraid. <laughs> and that, that has that glam 60s thing going on. Yeah. Some of the costumes. So yeah, It's true. Maybe that's what um, Tyker and Christy are coming in to do. Maybe they're going to do the new Holiday Special from Modern Times. I would not hate that. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god, yeah. Let Daisy sing. You know she'd do it. Um, <laughs> okay. No, so awesome. Anything else to say on that report, Kirsty? I don't think so. I mean, I guess we'll just get more information as it comes out. It's, I always wonder when stuff like this comes out officially, is it because it was leaked a little while before? And they're like, okay, well, we may as well come out and say it. Like, were they saving it for celebration? And then obviously celebration is not going to happen, even mm. though they haven't announced that yet. So yeah, I mean, maybe, maybe now we'll get more information in August when celebration would have been happening. Yeah, that'd be amazing. I'd really love that. Um, from what I've understood from like interviews with journalists who like do scoops so to speak so they'd get these sorts of stories about tv shows and movies in development they say that often it's sort of like um agents and actors playing games and like trying to put pressure on studios to actually commit to stuff so okay. when like hollywood reporter says taika watiti is in negotiations with disney like maybe things aren't a hundred percent locked down at that stage but having it in the trade papers sort of like forces action um and <laughs> that's yeah, so crafty i know it all sounds very political and i'm not sure if that's true and i'm sure it's not always true but yeah oh yeah because we've been hearing rumors about taika watita making a star wars film for years and of course we did have him work on the mandalorian so maybe some of those rumors came from that and people were getting their wires crossed like actually it was in tv yeah but I, I do remember actually him replying to a tweet years ago and he was like, no, I actually like to finish my movies. <laughs> <laughs> I like to think that he's got a pretty rock solid contract that promises things like Final Cut and not being we'll see. bullshit. And, yeah. Even like reading this stuff out, I'm like, well, <laughs> we'll see. I can't hope too much. Yeah, it, it's not our fault. I mean, naturally, I guess we are quite cynical pessimistic people but <laughs> the british it's just the way it is sorry i mean fool me once yeah. <laughs> fool me a million times star wars oh my God. come on it's like almost expected at this point that someone is going to change out get fired <laughs> in dramatic yet mysterious fashion yeah it is true like i'm going to try and suspend the 
crushing possibility of that from my mind for now and just <laughs> exists in a state of jubilation. But yeah, I must confess to being somewhat prepared for that eventuality. So we'll it's see. Good exactly. Yeah. yeah. That way it hurts less when it happens. So. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so let's move on. So the next and final news story that we want to bring up is about Tamura Morrison returning to Star Wars to play Boba Fett. And this is from The Hollywood Reporter. Tamura Morrison, who played Jango Fett in 2002's Star Wars Attack of the Clones, will appear in Season 2 of the Disney Plus Star Wars series. Sources say Morrison will play Boba Fett, the famed bounty hunter who first appeared on the big screen in 1980's Star Wars The Empire Strikes Back, and who seemingly died in 1983's Return of the Jedi as he fell into a Sarlacc pit. (laughs) (laughs) I notice they're not talking about Boba Fett's actual first appearance in Star Wars canon, which is the oh, holiday special. Exactly. Again, it, how I, dare they? I can't deal with this erasure. It's just too <laughs> hurtful. That's why they specify the big screen. Yeah, that's true. That technically they're correct. Um, although we all knew know that the holiday special should have been given a theatrical release. It's very sad. <laughs> okay, actor Jeremy Bullock portrayed the character in the original trilogy. Boba Fett is expected to play just a small role in season two of the series after the character was teased in the season one episode, The Gunslinger, when a mysterious figure sporting the bounty hunter's trademark spurs approached the apparently lifeless body of Fennec Shand, Ming-Na Wen. So, yeah, this is not completely unexpected for the reasons highlighted by the article itself. But how do you feel about this, Kirsty? Uh, very mixed because obviously any time a big announcement like this or a big rumour because it's not official but it's kind of put out there in fandom about a character returning there are people on both sides very passionate about it like whether it be a good thing or whether it's kind of Star Wars clinging to that nostalgia and frustration about them not moving forward and do something new with new characters and I, I definitely sympathise with both sides of that argument And I think it is just kind of a case of it remains to be seen what they choose to do with this character because someone coming back isn't necessarily a bad thing if they have a story to tell with them. And I've seen a lot of comments about the frustration. I I understand this in the wake of The Rise of Skywalker, especially like frustration around the over-reliance on nostalgia for the original trilogy. But actually, Tamara Morrison is more in the realm of prequels nostalgia mm. because that's where we see him playing Django Fett as the article says and now he'll be playing his son and th- of course there's also the possibility that the trades have it wrong and he might actually be playing a clone mm. he might not be playing Boba there's a possibility so we don't know for sure until it's officially announced but I really enjoy Tamara's performance in Attack of the Clones and uh, I really enjoy seeing Django and Boba's dynamic there and I think it could be interesting to see him play the son of the character he's already portrayed and in a post-Return of the Jedi environment and kind of put more depth to the character than we get in the original trilogy. Uh, So, I don't know. It could be a case... It could be more of a Palpatine returning. It could be more of a Maul returning where we have this kind of one-dimensional character that's then given an opportunity to be be fleshed out more. Mm. We, we We just don't know yet. Yeah. No, I think that's a very balanced way of looking at it. I'm kind of slightly indifferent, to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> That's also valid. <laughs> like, just because Boba, he's just not a character I care about much. It's like, okay. That's fair. He the prequels made me care about him a lot more. 
Yeah, no, we and I definitely think there's real solid work done in the prequels to make you feel empathy for Boba, and make you see like the human behind the armor, which I really appreciate. And yeah, if they were to go in that direction and actually like develop him more and expand on the character, I feel like that could be a really worthwhile reason to bring Morrison back to play that character I, I I think I'm just slightly dubious because they say small role and of course they yeah. might not have all the information but if it is just like a cameo so people could be like oh my god it's Boba Fett oh my god like I don't know like that just makes the cynic in me roll my eyes a bit no I totally get it like if it's just a cameo for the sake of it then I will be bummed because we got a lot of those in the Rise of Skywalker and in my opinion they don't add an awful lot to the story and in fact they kind of detract from it and distract from the actual main characters and story yeah how many people in the general audience really recognized Wedge and got excited about him (laughs) come on (laughs) it's true it's so true especially because Dennis Lawson didn't exactly look um, like he was deeply immersed in character (laughs) in that moment (laughs) He was thinking about the money he was making. Yes, Good for him. True. <laughs> Make that money, Dennis. I just think if if it turns out to be like a dud, I will be frustrated because I genuinely think there is the opportunity to tell an interesting story with Boba Fett. Like, he's the face of the clones. What does that do to you psychologically? He didn't consent to that. Like, he, he was a clone himself. Yeah. But he probably doesn't see himself as one. He sees himself as an individual person who was raised by his father. So... I don't know. He's played by a Maori actor. He's supposedly not a true Mandalorian. He just wears the armor. So in a show about Mandalorians and kind of exploring that culture and the different factions, I think there could be something interesting to say there about anti-imperialism, colonialism, appropriation, identity. Like all of these things could be there and they also could not be. It could be a missed opportunity. And that's kind of where I'm at with Star Wars right now because things can sound really interesting in theory and then they just completely miss the mark and don't delve into all these interesting things. Yeah. So we have to wait and see. Like, I I don't want to get my hopes up because like I say, I I think sometimes there are really exciting themes there on the surface and then they just don't explore them. So yeah. But I will be over the moon if they do. Yeah, no, definitely. So I think you can probably speak to this more than I can, Kirsty, because um, you've seen The Clone Wars, and I still have not. <laughs> um, but from what I understand of The Clone Wars, they make really interesting, like, extensive efforts to humanise those clones and make you yes. understand them as distinctive personalities. So they really seem to engage with that idea of okay, so you've taken this one man and you've created thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, I'm not sure of the numbers, but many, many separate individuals. And what actually comes of that situation? How unique are those people? And yeah, all that is really interesting stuff. So hopefully the Mandalorian takes that further. Exactly. You get clones who defect and run away and have families. You know, like I haven't watched the final series yet. Season, sorry. (laughs) Um, but I, I've heard that that kind of explores those themes further as well. And in many ways is more of a satisfying look at that kind of trooper defection than what we got with Finn in the sequel trilogy. So that might be important for people right now. Um, so yeah, all of this stuff is there. So they can do something with it and they cannot. So now we're going to move on to our spotlight discussion, which is going to be on the novelization of the original Star Wars. 
Um, and just before we start talking about that book specifically, I just wanted to briefly acknowledge why we're doing this. It's going to be part of a wider project where we look at the novelizations for each of the films. And do you want to explain why you wanted to do this particularly, Kirsty? Uh, well, partly we were like, what do we do now? <laughs> yeah, no, exactly. This is the sort of frank honesty you can expect from us. So. I mean, yeah, we were just after The Rise of Skywalker, we were like, okay, apart from obviously the Clone Wars is going on right now. And then, uh, well, it's just wrapped up. Um, and The Mandalorian in what, September, October? Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, but there's this big gap and we weren't sure what to cover. So we thought we'd kind of go back to the beginning um now that it's all over so yeah we've read some of these i think maybe you've read some and i haven't and vice versa but was this a brand new read for you it's definitely the first time i've read it from cover to cover i i've definitely read excerpts from it before now but i think very brief ones how about you it was all new for me i don't think i've read any excerpts so it, it was an interesting experience um we'll we'll go into it but either way i'm after reading this one, I'm like, yeah, now I want to read the next one. And I think it's going to be really interesting and kind of recontextualize a lot of what's in the movies for me. Yeah, no, definitely. And I think it's also just a really interesting way of tracing the evolution of Stoles as an idea by looking at these novelizations. So if you think about this original Stoles novel, it was published before the film even came out in theaters. And so this book was the first impression that a lot of people had of the Star Wars universe. I would love to speak to someone who read this before seeing any of the movies. Yes. It would be so fascinating. Uh, yeah, that's like my dream interview. I need to find someone. <laughs> <laughs> and also someone who remembers, because obviously I'm sure lots of people read it at the time, but they don't have particularly strong feelings about it. You know? yeah. So I'd want someone who got really invested in the Alan Dean Foster version of Star Wars and then saw the film and was like, oh, but why is this different? And to be honest, that wouldn't be a huge thing because there aren't many huge differences between the book and the film. But yeah, it would still be a very interesting conversation to have. So if you're one of those people, if you're like an OG fan who read the novel before you saw the film, please email us because we would genuinely be fascinated to hear from you. Yeah, I wanted to read this because last year we read Splinter of the Mind's Eye and discussed that. And that's very different. Yes. <laughs> so this is this is quite in contrast because they're like a they're a double feature. Like he was contracted to write the two of them. Um but this is as we'll go into it, it's pretty faithful to what you see on screen. There are some embellishments and some changes, but really they're quite minimal. Yeah. Um it's pretty accurate as to what I recognise a new hope to be. And then Splinter of the Mind's Eye suddenly goes off in this crazy direction compared to Empire. Yep. So that's fascinating in itself. Yeah. No, there's so much fascinating history behind these novelizations and how it was part of the wider plan. I actually found that there's a really interesting chapter that's specifically about the Star Wars novelizations in a book called Star Wars and the History of Transmedia Storytelling. And the chapter's by a guy called Thomas Van Paris. And I just briefly wanted to read out a paragraph that gives some context to how the novelization came about, essentially. So this is what it says. Publishing Star Wars spin-off novels was a franchising strategy from the beginning. As part of publicity supervisor Charles Lippincott's marketing plan, a deal was made with Ballantine Books for the publication of five Star Wars books, two novels, two making-of books, and a calendar. 
published as Star Wars from the Adventures of Luke Skywalker with a cover design by Ralph McQuarrie, the novelization of A New Hope first appeared in December 1976, five months before the film was released. This pre-release was partially due to a shift in the film's release date, and partially because Lippincott wanted science fiction fans to get to know the story and spread the word. The paperback hit the bestseller list, and its print run of 250,000 copies sold out by February. In other words, the novelization was not just a book that benefited from the popularity of the film. In its own way, it contributed to that success. According to Ballantine, 3.5 million copies were sold in three months, making it the fourth biggest bestseller in America. So, yeah, I think that's some really interesting context and scene setting for the significance of this novelization, essentially. Yeah, it's pretty remarkable. And I read an interview somewhere, I can't remember where it was now, sorry, this week um, with Alan Dean Foster, who said that, yeah, he was contracted to do the two books um, for George Lucas, but George pushed for him to get um, royalties on the first book. And he he hadn't anticipated that. And at the time he was like, okay, well, I don't stand to make much money from this, but that's a very nice gesture from George. And then, of course, in hindsight, he's very glad that George was so generous. Yep. <laughs> that was a nice insight into the dynamic. Yeah, no, definitely. And I'll, I'll give up with the quotes in a minute, I promise. But we actually have a quote <laughs> from Alan Dean Foster himself um, explaining how he got the job. So I'll just read that quickly, too. This is from SFF World. You wrote Splinter of the Mind's Eye in Star Wars, the first original Star Wars novels. How did you get that assignment? Alan. My agents got a call from Lucas's lawyer of the time, Tom Pollock, now one of the most powerful men in Hollywood. Someone had read a book of mine, Ice Rigger, knew that I had already done novelizations, and thought I might be the writer to do the novelization of Lucas's new film. I already knew his work through THX 1138 and American Graffiti. I accepted the offer to meet with George, and did so at Industrial Light and Magic, then in a small warehouse in Van Noyes, California part of Greater Los Angeles and conveniently near my family home. We hit it off well. I got the assignment for two books and that's how it happened. And yeah, this quote, I, I kind of like Alan. I just can't help but like him because he's very plain speaking. He doesn't have any bullshit. He just gets straight to the point and he's very direct. And his style of writing in the novel is like that as well. So I feel like this is a personal piece. <laughs> yeah. I'm not sure we've made a big enough point of this, but it's so fascinating to me that this book was published under George Lucas's name rather than Alan Dean Foster's. And I think it can probably safely be assumed that that's a marketing gimmick because George Lucas was pretty famous at the time because I think we've lost sight of it now because it's not as widely seen. But at the time, American Graffiti was a huge success. I think it was one of the biggest box office hits of the year it came out. And it was a bit of a pop culture phenomenon. So, yeah, it makes sense that they would want to trumpet the name George Lucas at every opportunity. But, yeah, it means that poor Alan didn't get the credit he deserved. I think even now it's still published under George Lucas's name. Yeah, the edition I have is it's Del Rey from 2015 and it says George, but we all know it's not. So. <laughs> yeah, I think George himself came out and said it was Foster a few years after it was published. Yeah. I mean, I think he was pretty well known at the time, at least as a science fiction writer for writing for like Star Trek and stuff. Yeah, that's right. I think he'd written novelizations for the animated series. Yeah, he, wa he wasn't a household name in the same way that George was. So that makes sense. Yeah, exactly. I was watching a separate interview with Foster where he said he's written over 100 books 
which wow. yeah really made me feel like an underachiever <laughs> I was like oh my god <laughs> yeah it's just pretty wild he's a very very prolific author and yeah just has that drive I guess so good for him right let's get straight to it what is your general summation of the novel how did you feel about it Kirsty? did you enjoy reading it I did enjoy reading it, but in the same way that I enjoy watching the movie. Yeah. So it depends what you want from a novelization, I think. And if I think about this coming out before the first movie even came out, I think it fits it quite well because it is just kind of what it says on the tin, um, describing, you know, adapting George's screenplay, which is what he was hired to do. Um, but if I compare it to like other kind of novelizations in the Star Wars canon, and they're all varied, like that's the thing. You get novels like Revenge of the Sith, we always come back to that one as our favourite because it embellishes so much, explores the themes of the movie in such a deep, interesting way, mm. um, recontextualises stuff almost, um, that you really feel like it adds value, whereas this is like a very faithful adaptation. Yeah. So it, it depends what you want. But yeah, I enjoyed it um, and I thought it highlighted certain things over others, um, kind of got not not shocked by the way he interpreted certain looks and expressions and exchanges between the characters but it was still like oh that's interesting i haven't really thought of that quite that same way before and and also because it's a movie that i've seen so many times it was kind of nice to experience it in a different way it kind of did remind me of certain parts that i just kind of gloss over or you know i go and get a drink and take for granted <laughs> because i've seen it so many times over the years it was like you know, obviously when you're reading you have to focus on it that throughout you can't switch off so uh yeah I, w- I would recommend it to people that's what i'm saying but of course um as with splinter of the mind's eye we have to add the caveat that there's a decent dose of sexism um and you know depending on your mood you can find that funny and you can also find it offensive like it's all totally valid so it's very 70s Yes. <laughs> um, I think the phrase that my dad would use about the novel is it's very much of its time, which is true. You can tell it's a book written in the 1970s. Let's put it that way. Well, you say that, but then you also texted me as we were reading it to be like, can you believe the bloody chamber came out? Yeah. Pretty, pretty close to this. Yeah. Which... Okay. Let me reframe this. You can tell that this is it's the target audience. Yeah. You can tell that this is pulp science fiction written for young males in the 1970s. It's yeah. It's very much of its time in that respect. Yeah, it's one of those things where, you know, obviously we're women, we have a Star Wars podcast, we love Star Wars, we love talking about it, and we know that, you know, there have always been female Star Wars fans, and we all say Star Wars is for everyone, but coming back to this novelization, uh, it's for everyone, but it may be for some people more than others, as it started out. Yeah, I think there are lots of, like, unspoken assumptions made essentially and the perspectives that are chosen especially um because for example um when we get leia putting the disc into r2d2 to send the help me obi-wan kenobi message at the very beginning um that scene in the novelization is depicted from the perspective of the stormtrooper and i guess that that aligns pretty much with how it's handled. wait i thought i thought that was 3po um i'm pretty sure let me check 
Oh, I, I thought 3PO was like looking for R2. You know, like he is in the movie. Yeah. And then he like sees them and wonders if Leia is like a an illusion. Yeah, that does happen. But I think there's like then a separate scene where we get the like guards coming across Leia and they think she's harmless and then she blasts them. Oh, And that yeah, scene okay. is from the trooper's perspective. Yeah, I agree. We don't get anything really from Leia's own perspective. We we she in it's it's complicated because I say it's sexist and I think it is, but it's also clear that they're trying to present Leia as this badass, amazing, strong, independent female character. Yeah, and that being very subversive for the time, and it definitely was. So, it's both of its time and um pretty revolutionary for its time yeah but no more so than the film is oh yeah (laughs) Yeah. definitely (laughs) and Um, yeah that's another blessing and curse of this novelizations it does skew so close to the script for the most part that like there are like little quirks and fosterisms if you don't mind the expression (laughs) but yeah for the most part it's not adding considerably more value so i definitely think it's worth reading if you're a star wars fan but i don't feel like i could recommend it to anyone who isn't like a big committed star wars fan and wants oh, to no. go to the next level <laughs> no but hear me out hear me out like because okay, basically what i'd say is that that's true for the vast majority of these styles novelizations but with revenge of the sith honestly i think i would actually recommend the novel of that over the film and i know that's a bit oh, yeah. like bad but yeah i would well i i don't i don't know if i would go that far as to be like oh, you should watch, you should read this instead of watching the movie. But I think if someone was like not quite sold on the prequels, I would say read that and it will smooth things over a lot for you. Yeah. But yeah, I, I know what you mean. Like, because it's so faithful, it's like, well, if you didn't like the movie, you're probably not going to like the book. It's the same story. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and in fact, it does emphasize the movies. Not, I don't know. The depiction of Leia in A New Hope is complicated because she's object, you know, it, it's, Luke's infatuation with her kickstarts a lot of it in in some ways, and you can see it kind of throughout. Um, yeah, I mean, as with Splinter of the Mind's Eye, and in, in some ways I think Splinter of the Mind's Eye is much worse because that has the whole, like, oh, Luke has the Force and Leia does not, and that makes her inferior. Yeah. Um, like, pretty blatantly. Uh, we, we went into that when we discussed it, but um, this one, it's just funny almost how every single time Leia is mentioned, it has to be noted that she's beautiful and lithe and slim and petite. And, oh, she's so nervous that her perfectly manicured nails have been bitten down. Oh, heaven forbid. Oh, women in their womenly concerns. <laughs> yeah. Even when we're getting Leia from 3PO's perspective, he notes that she's a beautiful, conventionally attractive young woman. It's like, <laughs> would 3PO wouldn't notice that. And Freepio also has a sense of smell. That's a big point. That's <laughs> yes, <on>. okay. <laughs> which I actually really enjoyed. There's all sorts of little things about like that, which are, I, I assume that they're supposed to be funny, but sometimes it's hard to tell. But yeah, I, I did have a laugh. Yeah, no, it was good. Um, right, so I have some headings here, just some to give us a vague structure. So the first thing that I'd like to talk about is relationship to the film and what the key differences are. And obviously we've already touched upon this in our opening conversation. Um, but really, it's remarkably similar. Defin- definitely plot-wise, yeah. Because I could see that things like weren't quite lining up, but I was like, did I, did I miss something, maybe? Well, I went to Wikipedia and looked at the differences, and it's stuff like, oh, he, 
he's in blue squadron instead of red squadron and Chewie gets his medal at the end and of course he doesn't in the movie and that matters to some fans but um basically it's the same yeah so there's there's just stuff like i personally don't feel like it does justice to han in some ways like because the story is told from luke's perspective yeah mostly um you know other characters are kind of um put on the back burner a little bit yeah and then of course if you contextualize it into okay well the sequel to this is splinter of the mind's eye han's not even in that one so he obviously wasn't Alan Dean Foster's focus. It was very much the Luke show. Yeah. Ah, but do you know why that Han wasn't in Splinter? Yes, I, yeah, I, I do. Ah, okay, it's yeah, very, yeah. it's practical reasons. But I just mean like if t- we're taking this as like the canon for this is Star Wars and then Splinter of the Mind's Eye. Yeah. No, you're right. It's clear that he wasn't a main character in in the same way as Luke was in Alan Dean Foster's eyes. Yeah. So no, that's definitely. Although I, I do like, we'll go into it, but I do like the way he depicts Han and Leia's relationship because it's obvious that like the primary love interest aspect of it is Luke and Leia, but he is kind of teasing Han and Leia to an extent. I'm like, how much did he know or just guess about the, what the potential directions would be? Yeah. So obviously in the movie you get that exchange between Han and Luke, where he's like, "Do you think a." a princess and a guy like me and it's like obviously meant to be this like undercurrent of jealousy from luke and han kind of laughing at him it's an interesting description of han there that's like oh he's like playing it off for laughs but he's not quite sure underneath if maybe he actually has feelings for leia but doesn't quite he's not quite ready to acknowledge them himself yet yeah let alone to anyone else and i thought that was interesting yeah definitely it's a surprising little slice of emotional maturity for this novel Hmm. Yeah, like, I think the most obvious differences from the movie, or at least the movie as it would have been seen in 1977, are all the early scenes with Luke and his friends at Anchorhead, because they're they're still not in the film. They won't put it back in with the special edition. And then there's the scene where Han and Jabba have the confrontation on Tatooine. And that was reinstated for the special edition, but it wasn't in the film when it was released in cinemas in '77. So, again, going back to the idea of wishing we could interview someone who read the novel first and then saw the film, I'd love to know what they felt when they saw the film. It's like, oh, where's Jabba the Hutt? I want to see Jabba the Hutt. Because the, it's the idea that Jabba was originally a human being. Because Han literally says that to him, doesn't he? Like, you're a wonderful human being. Yeah, no, that's true. He does. Um, but what's what really stood out to me, actually, when reading the novel is the description of Jabba is not a description of a human. It's the description of him as like he's seen, you know, it's like a bag of suet or something. He almost reminded me of like Uncar Plut. Mm, maybe. Like humanoid, but not... Do you know what I mean? Yeah, no, it's true. Like, I, I think you're probably right, actually, because if you think about how that scene was staged when it was filmed with Harrison Ford and the human actor as Jabba, they wouldn't have had Harrison Ford like walk on his tail deliberately. <laughs> That's something that they had to like fix very, very awkwardly <laughs> at a later stage. So yeah, they clearly didn't have it all figured out, but yeah, I don't think they had a firm idea of who Jabba was. He was just a gangster. Yeah, exactly. That clearly not, completely human i don't think given the description and the novelization but yeah like also not the creature he came to be in return of the jedi 
Mm. So yeah, it's an interesting description. Um, and I do enjoy the scenes with Luke and his friends at Anchorhead, but I think reading them all written out, it definitely reinforces for me that those scenes were right to be jettisoned. I think it works much better that we're introduced to Luke where we're introduced to him. It just feels much cleaner yeah. that way. Yeah, the pacing, I think, is definitely improved by it. But I also, I do like those scenes. Like, I think it's it really does set the tone for Luke, like having a community in this place but while being frustrated and bored by it and then when he sees Biggs again um that kind of cements the idea that yeah he definitely does want to go off exploring yeah and then when he goes back home he gets into that argument with Owen and gets really cheesed off um no I feel like he did like good stuff with that and it was also good um scene setting for the wider fight in the rebellion and the fact that it was all whispered about and no one could talk about it openly and stuff um so yeah I yeah and, and it means something then when biggs comes back later yeah no absolutely because that is it's not really a flaw because you don't even really register it to be honest but it means that biggs turning up at the rebel base it's not a payoff to anything it's just a bit arbitrary Whereas if mm. you'd had these early scenes, then yeah, that's obviously the purpose of it. And it gives much more weight to Biggs's death. Yeah, definitely. And just, that, yeah, this idea that like, and I know we get it with the exchange with 3PO where he finds out, oh, you guys are, you, you know about the rebellion? But even before that, like you can see that Luke is interested in events off planet. He just doesn't quite know where to find his path. Yeah. Um. So, yeah, I, I really, yeah, that's actually a good point that I value the novelization for, for those scenes because I completely get why they're cut from the film because it struck me actually when I was reading it, I was like, wow, I'm halfway through and they're just leaving Tatooine. Yeah. You know? <laughs> so, yeah, it's a really interestingly paced movie. And I, I know a lot of people actually complain that A New Hope takes ages to get going, but I, I think that's part of the point. Yeah. No, it's like to me watching it, like this is my is it well it's definitely informed by nostalgia but it still feels like quite a fast and exciting movie but yeah you're right i know younger people who've seen it and they find it a bit dull and as you say slow to get going so yeah that's interesting observation yeah i guess reading this again it kind of made all of the recent almost tatooine uh nostalgia in a positive sense like almost worship of it as like the home of star wars and everything you know, that you saw in The Rise of Skywalker and even coming back to it in The Mandalorian, I was like, Tatooine sucks. Yeah. And that's the point. Like, Luke wants to get away. <laughs> yeah. No, it's it's just a shithole, really, isn't it? Is it and no, we're not saying that in a terrible... We both come from small, semi-rural places where nothing happens. Yep. So we relate to Luke. We relate to him strongly, like, oh my God, I'm so bored. Like, my life, <laughs> I'm sitting around waiting for my life to start, blah, blah. Yes. Um, I'm sure lots of people do, and that's why the story has become so universal. Like, you know, that whole binary sunset thing of dreaming off, of going off to more interesting places. Like, we can all relate to that to an extent. Yeah. But it makes the, the reverence for Tatooine all the more baffling, in my opinion. <laughs> Yeah, no, it's true. It's definitely not depicted reverently in this book. Let's put it that way. <laughs> All of the characters are going on about how much they hate it. Alfred Pio yeah. is so uncomfortable. And after reading Anthony Daniels' uh, memoir about actually filming it, it's like, oh, that is totally evident in the character. Like, they were all just so frustrated and uncomfortable. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, I actually have a quote from 
Alan Dean Foster um, that he gave to Jedi News. That's quite an interesting one about the the job of adapting the film and how that's different now from how it was back in 1976. So here's what he has to say. Things have changed now, as these days you have the story group and every word is scrutinised and analysed and gone over and you can't really write anything without it being vetted. With the original novelization of the first film, it was basically like, here's the screenplay and some production art, go write the book. I then turned the book in, and it was fine, and that was the end of it, which from a writer's standpoint is wonderful. There was very little interference. I suspect as George, Gary Kurtz and everyone else were working 24-7 to make the movie to get it finished before they ran out of money, there is no time to deal with ancillary rights. Now it is a giant enterprise, and everything is analysed in depth. And I just feel like that's a really useful reality check to have in relation to the novelizations. And again, it's a marker of what makes something like this novelization so special and so different because it was just written in such a free manner. That's sort of unimaginable to us now. So yes, it is very close to what we actually get in the finished film, but he did have much more freedom to describe certain moments however he liked and there was no one looking over his shoulder and scrutinizing every decision that was made and yeah i just think that's really interesting hmm i guess that does make it all the more striking for me that he doesn't take that many liberties with the characterization or adding in certain scenes or anything like it is really very accurate to what we get in the movie yeah i think that could probably also be tied back into other comments I've seen him give in interviews which I haven't transcribed so this is just the Alan Dean Foster interview show where he was basically saying that no one expected it to become this big big phenomenon and for him ultimately it was just another job there wasn't a sense Mm. that it was this huge special thing so I think that makes sense of that because it is ultimately quite a workmanlike novel and it's pretty slim in terms of just reflecting what we get on screen and yeah it makes sense it would just be pumped out in that fashion if it's like oh yeah it's just another cool sci-fi movie we'll make a few bucks it will have a bit of a following but nothing too special and then obviously it turned into the star wars that we all know now and it's a completely different beast yeah it also makes it all the more remarkable for me that george really adhered pretty closely to what we get in the opening prologue that you know, we don't we don't have a crawl like we do in the movie and it's different what we get here. But it's pretty much it's very, very close to what actually panned out in the prequels in terms of like setting the scene for how we get to this empire. Yeah, that's actually a great we- segue, Kirsty, because the next thing I want to talk about is the world building in the novelization. Okay, it is very impressive to me because I'm like I'm trying to work out the order of things and I know there are books out there and I've I've kind of started them and then abandoned them in terms of like tracking the chronology of how George built this world and what he had decided at what point. Yeah. But it this is very impressive to me because it's pretty much like he kind of already had everything in line. Like not everything, there's certain things that are like, oh, that's not quite the same. Yeah. But that like a lot of it is like, okay, that's that's what the prequels are and you wrote this in nineteen seventy six. That's amazing. Yeah. Like it's quite a long excerpt, but I feel like it is really significant for the reasons you've mentioned. So I've highlighted it. Would you mind reading it out so then we can just marvel at it a bit more? <laughs> sure. From the first saga journal of the wills. Another galaxy, another time. The old republic was the Republic of Legend. 
greater than distance or time. No need to know where it was or whence it came, only to know that it was the Republic. Once, under the wise rule of the Senate and the protection of the Jedi Knights, the Republic throve and grew. But as often happens, when wealth and power pass beyond the admirable and attain the awesome, then appear those evil ones who have greed to match. So it was with the Republic at its height. Like the greatest of trees, able to withstand any external attack, the Republic rotted from within, though the danger was not visible from outside. Aided and abetted by restless, power-hungry individuals within the government and the massive organs of commerce, the ambitious Senator Palpatine caused himself to be elected President of the Republic. He promised to reunite the disaffected among the people and to restore the remembered glory of the Republic. Once secure in office, he declared himself Emperor, shutting himself away from the populace. Soon he was controlled by the very assistants and bootlickers he had appointed to high office, and the cries of the people for justice did not reach his ears. Having exterminated through treachery and deception the Jedi Knights, guardians of justice in the galaxy, the Imperial governors and bureaucrats prepared to institute a reign of terror among the disheartened worlds of the galaxy. Many used the Imperial forces and the name of the increasingly isolated Emperor to further their own personal ambitions. But a small number of systems rebelled at these new outrages. Declaring themselves opposed to the new order, they began the great battle to restore the old Republic. From the beginning, they were vastly outnumbered by the systems held in thrall by the Emperor. In those first dark days, it seemed certain the bright flame of resistance would be extinguished before it could cast the light of new truth across a galaxy of oppressed and beaten peoples. It's amazing <laughs> reading that. It's just such a mind-boggling thought because, yeah, as you said, Kirsty, it's literally the plot of the prequels laid out. And there are some very important and significant differences. Like here, there's no suggestion that the Emperor is Force-sensitive, for example. That doesn't seem to factor in at all. Also, it's this idea that he's like not actually in control and he's just like a figurehead. Yeah, exactly, but, yeah. which changed. But ultimately, those are smaller things because pretty much everything else did come to be followed through and was the actual story. So in line with that, I feel like this has to be based on like background material that was given to Foster by George Lucas. Yeah. Because, yeah, I don't see George Lucas... George basing his trilogy around <laughs> yeah, exactly. a novelization. With story credit to Alan Dean Foster. <laughs> it just it makes it all the more amazing to me that you know however you feel about the prequels like this was the story that george wanted to tell for decades and then he got to and he did it on his own terms i just think that's brilliant yeah no, it's amazing i think it's important to remember with those films that they're some of the biggest independent films ever made pretty much because they were independent films they were distributed by a big movie company but they would produced by George's own finances and stuff and his own fundraising so yeah it's pretty incredible um, mm-hmm. and yeah I really like the world building in this novelization actually I think it's really well done for the most part there are some like interesting little eccentricities and things that go against our what we otherwise understand to be true of Star Wars and stuff um but there's a lot of stuff that i find actually like enriches it like for example there's this discussion between a bunch of imperial officers where they're all like arguing their different perspectives and their different allegiances and beliefs on things and it's a conversation that you do get some of in the movie but it's extended upon in the novelization which yeah i found really enjoyable and i'll actually read that out just quickly 
I tell you, he's gone too far this time, the general was insisting vehemently. This Sith Lord inflicted on us at the urging of the Emperor will be our undoing. Until the battle station is fully operational, we remain vulnerable. Some of you still don't seem to realise how well equipped and organised the Rebel Alliance is. Their vessels are excellent, their pilots better, and they're propelled by something more powerful than mere engines, this perverse, reactionary fanaticism of theirs. They're more dangerous than most of you realise. An older officer, with facial scars so deeply engraved that even the best cosmetic surgery could not fully repair them, shifted nervously in his chair. Dangerous to your Starfleet, General Targ, but not to this battle station. Wizened eyes hopped from man to man, travelling around the table. I happen to think Lord Vader knows what he's doing. The rebellion will continue only as long as those cowards have a sanctuary, a place where their pilots can relax and their machines can be repaired. Tag objected. I beg to differ with you, Ramodi. I think the construction of this station has more to do with Governor Tarkin's bid for personal power and recognition than with any justifiable military strategy. Within the Senate, the rebels will continue to increase their support as long... And then they're interrupted. But, yeah, I live for that stuff, basically. I like all the bitchiness and the petty drama. And, yeah, that sort of extra material is a big aspect of the value of the novelization for me. Yeah, because we get a bit of that before Tarkin and Vader come in right but not not to the degree that it is in the novel yeah exactly it's greatly extended and it's just more context more scene setting for the bigger conflict and yeah it's just quite a nice way to convey that so well done alan <laughs> this, this, this is sorry to be so base no, don't worry. but the opening of that chapter did you get the impression i don't know if i was reading it wrong or if i just have a messed up mind but <laughs> When they were introducing the character of Tag, Mm -hmm. and they're like, no one really understands how he's climbed so far and fast by methods not examined too closely. (laughs) Oh my god! (laughs) (laughs) Okay, let me read it out. Okay, do it. Um, it. One of the youngest of the eight was declaiming. He exhibited the attitude of one who'd climbed far and fast by methods best not examined too closely. General Tag did possess a certain twisted genius, but it was only partly that ability which had lifted him to his present exalted position. Other noise and talents had proven equally efficacious. Or <laughs> efficacious. I feel like that could describe Hux just as well. I know, right? It did remind me of him. Um, obviously, Hux is kind of in the, the Tarkin element of two, as is uh, Pry, but... Though his uniform was neatly moulded and his body as clean as that of anyone else in the room, none of the remaining seven cared to touch him. (laughs) A certain sliminess clung cloyingly to him, a sensation inferred rather than tactile. Despite this, many respected him or feared him. Okay, doesn't it kind of sound like he's suggesting that maybe he, like, slept his way to the top? (laughs) Or did something questionable... Did he murder a bunch of people? Like, what is going on here? What are we supposed to take away from this? <laughs> That's a very good question. Um, I don't have the answers, but whatever they are, I want a novel about There's it. It's just something about this guy. And I, I really enjoy the uh, exchange in the movie between him. I didn't even know his name, but that Imperial who Vader, like, force chokes. Yes. And he's, like, mocking him for his force powers. So he, like, goads Vader into it, basically. But even between Vader and Tarkin... There's like this, and between them, it's obviously like not quite so explicit, but there is this tension between Vader as like the force sensitive Sith Lord with these mysterious powers, and he's like the last of his kind. And then these Imperials who are just like bureaucrats, they just want to get stuff done. Yeah. 
Well, Kirsty, I've just quickly looked on Wikipedia and there's several thousand words about Targ's life on the canon and even more on the Legends pages. Okay. Well, I'm, I'll be going exploring later. Yeah. Let's do a spotlight on Targ <laughs> at one point. We'll find out about his rise to power. I, do, I do really enjoy that. It's obviously brief, but that actor's performance in A New Hope. Yeah. Like, he's so snivelly and I, he dares to mock Vader. Like, yeah. who, who would do that? Yeah, it takes guts. I like guts. <laughs> So or idiocy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You're either brave or stupid, I'm not sure which. Um <laughs> yeah, those no, so I really like that stuff. Um I feel like the descriptions of the Imperials that they're, they're like almost too brief. So I feel like that's the stuff that he's best at. Like he exhibits a real talent for that sort of like snide bitchiness and yeah, I wish Alan had more opportunity to flex those muscles. But Yeah. yeah. And there's also something about the way in, obviously it's much earlier than that, but when Vader's first introduced, he's like almost described as, it almost sounds as if there's like, he's he's a Dark Lord of the Sith, but there are many Dark Lords of the Sith. He's almost introduced like how we would think of the Inquisitors yeah. in contemporary canon. Like, oh yeah, he's a, he's a Lord of the Sith, but we have plenty of those. Yeah. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? I know what you mean. It's kind of strange. He seems like a bit of a mini boss you can read that in a new hope too like that he's like very he's kind of like a lackey for tarkin and by extension the emperor but what's interesting about the novelization and i don't think this comes through in um the movie itself because we we don't really have an emphasis on vader as like a character with internality and desires and motives yeah um but it's you get the sense that he has his own plan yeah and of course this does line up with splinter of the mind's eye where you see vader going after luke um, and not for the reasons that he is an empire, but it, that he's kind of elevated to that big bad of his own plan. Presumably something involving overthrowing the emperor for himself eventually. Yeah. No, I actually have that quote. Um, It's probably a good time to move on to the characters at this point. Um, And yeah, it's quite a long section, so I don't want to like read out the whole thing again because, yeah, otherwise we're going to be doing an audiobook. But for example, we have this insight into Vader's plans. Despite his advances and intricate technological methods of annihilation, the actions of mankind remained unnoticeable to an uncaring, unimaginably vast universe. If Vader's grandest plans ever came to pass, all that would change. So what's intriguing to me about how Foster describes this is he alludes to some sort of grand plan that Vader has, but you never actually understand what he's getting at, kind of. Hmm. I wonder if that means that that was in George's original plan, mm. but then he decided to go the father route. Yeah, it definitely seems like he was originally envisaged as a much less complex character. Like, was just this like evil person with evil designs on the galaxy. And mm. there was always that interesting backstory for him, in that he had been a pupil of Obi-Wan's who turned against him and killed Luke's father. And that was some meat on the bones. He wasn't just like a random evil person. There was a personal connection. But yeah, Lucas obviously decided to make it that much more personal. So yeah. Yeah, is well, this is obviously an understatement, but I think it was a very good choice to make him a character who would relate to Luke in a more intimate way. Because mm. I mean, I, I know the idea originally is that, oh yeah, he killed your dad, but is that enough? I, I don't know <laughs> yeah <laughs> obviously it's enough to make luke hate him yeah so if you want that to be the goal sure but if you want the actual growth that we get between these characters that you know culminates in return of the jedi where they love and forgive each other that's 
I guess that's unprecedented at this point. Yeah. Which makes it all the more remarkable that it all fits together so well. Yeah. No, he's so lucky. So I was also thinking about that when reading the novelization. I was kind of hyper alert for things that might undermine that later reveal of Vader as the father. But I really couldn't find anything. And in some ways it just made it stand out even more that, yeah, that twist really works, man. It's very yeah, good. I think the only thing it does, obviously, is it makes Obi-Wan into more of a liar. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Well, and Owen and Baru, but yeah, you know, whatever. You can understand their motives a bit more, but... Yeah. And also, just quickly, I really like this salt from Vader, um, which, yeah, I just live for this. He was well aware that despite all their intelligence and drive, the vastness and wonder were lost on the two men who continued to chatter, monkey-like, behind him. Tarkin and Motti were talented and ambitious, but they saw things only on the scale of human pettiness. It was a pity, Vader thought, that they did not possess the scope to match their abilities. And I'll tell you what all this reminds me of, Kirsty, this whole passage where we get into Vader's headspace. It reminds me of that infamous scene from the Force Awakens novelization. Yeah. Where it's Kylo like looking out into the stars and having this like grandiose like internal monologue. <laughs> I love it. Well that that Kate, that's so that's what's interesting because it does seem like the dark side characters emphasise how the force and their powers set them apart from regular mortals. Mm. Yeah. Um, which is that, cause we've had lots of conversations recently, and I, fandom is too, about what you know the Last Jedi was saying about the Force and how everyone can have it, and even the most common person can have it, um, and everyone can tap into it to an extent. And I guess the Rise of Skywalker goes there to a certain degree because obviously you get characters like Finn and Janna suddenly feeling like they have the Force but not being trained in it. But then you also have like the oh, it has to be passed down. You know, it's a hereditary thing, or um, you know, in these cases, it like it's something that makes them more important on like a a galactic scale. It makes them gods almost. Yeah. Um, you know, is that a good thing or a bad thing? Because then you get the whole delusions of grandeur. <laughs> <sighs> yeah. You get someone like Leia who has the Force but isn't like precious about it, or doesn't see herself as I guess raised the same way. But... Yeah. It's just men, Kirsty. It's just men getting uh, grand maybe, ideas. Maybe that's it. <laughs> I don't know how uh, conscious that is, considering the writers themselves are men, but it's interesting to know. Yeah, we're conducting a feminist reclamation of the narrative. So. <sighs> okay. Like, I would say that this novelization is quite minimal on character work. Uh, do you feel like that's a fair statement, Kirsty? Um, well, I feel like I got to know 3PO a lot better. <laughs> Which I'm not complaining about. Yeah, I feel like of all the characters that get um, real estate in this novel, 3PO benefits the most. And I actually missed him, because obviously he fades into the background a lot after those initial scenes when they're on the Tantive 4 and then when they're on Tatooine, because yeah. it becomes more about Luke. And I was kind of like, I wish we could stay in 3PO's perspective, to be honest. <laughs> Yeah, I have to say, I took a while with, like, the last few chapters. And to be honest, like, once they leave the Death Star and then they do the whole battle mission, mm. like, flying and explosions and all that, that's the part that I find least interesting in the movie itself. I don't know if that's a controversial take. Yeah, no, I agree with you. I have the same thing. Yeah. I find Tatooine, the droids, Luko and Beru, meeting Han, Obi-Wan, I find all of that stuff so much more compelling. So, Yeah. Yeah. No, I agree with you. And I feel like Foster has this quite um, 
like he loves the language he uses lots of unusual words as you'll have noticed in some of the passages that Kirsty and I have been reading out and I feel like that sort of fussy style really suits 3PO because yeah the way that Foster seems to think and seems to write because this whole thing it's from like an omniscient narrative perspective essentially so it's constantly hopping about to different people and there's like no sense of it being fixed from a particular person's point of view and I feel like when it does settle into free PO, that's where the writing makes is the best fit and feels the most comfortable. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was trying to find some good free PO quotes, and I feel like this one is one of my favourites. Could you read it out, Kirsty? I've just highlighted it. We seem to have been made to suffer. Three PO moaned in self pity. It's a rotten existence. Something squeaked in his right leg, and he winced. I've got to rest before I fall apart. My internals still haven't recovered from that headlong crash you called a landing. And I just love that because obviously that's like it's riffing off a line from the film. It's a rotten existence, I think, is something he says. And he definitely says we seem to have been made to suffer. Um, (laughs) Is that a lot in life? Yes, exactly. Um, But I just like the elaborations on that dialogue. He seems to nail it for 3PO. Yeah, he's really very mean to R2. Oh, yeah. Um, Which is obviously, again, it's something that's present in the film throughout, but just at the end he's so worried about him <laughs> he's like you are gonna he is gonna be okay right you're gonna be able to fix him yeah um yeah i just love their dynamic and you obviously get that to varying degrees throughout the films but really it's a new hope where it's like most most present yeah like they really are quite central characters yeah they go on an actual journey in a new hope as well there's character development for them which isn't so much the case in the other films for understandable reasons but yeah (laughs) Yeah. it's quite nice in a new hope and then we have this rather insulting description of luke so luke skywalker was twice the age of the 10 year old evaporator but much less secure at the moment he was swearing softly at a recalcitrant valve adjuster on the temperamental device from time to time he resorted to some unsettled pounding in place of using the appropriate tool neither method worked very well Luke was sure that the lubricants used on the evaporator went out of their way to attract sand, beckoning seductively to small abrasive particles with an oily gleam. (laughs) He swiped sweat from his forehead and leaned back for a moment. The most prepossessing thing about the young man was his name. Ouch. Mm. And I feel like... (sighs) It's just like Luke, I I do really like him and I think Mark Hamill does a really good job as the character, but he is just that like bland hero template, especially at this point, you know, I think he becomes more richly developed as the original trilogy progresses, but the whole point of that type of character is that he's this blank slate, nothing significant has happened to him yet to really forge much character in him, so. Yeah, he's an everyman, but he has this secret important destiny so you know everyone can see themselves in him and want to go off and do something important with their lives yeah but yeah he he is definitely depicted as someone like not super bright <laughs> uh yeah i love that the thought i love the thought processes he has like sweetheart like i really don't think you should be thinking about lubricants in that way sometimes he just really doesn't it takes a while to grasp things like the cantina stuff as well obviously it comes through in the movie like he doesn't know what he's doing he he doesn't know how to navigate those kind of situations with that many aliens around him and all, all, all of this new stuff you know um 
but obviously the the novelization is going to explore it in a greater depth exactly and then we also have a fantastic description of vader and tarkin which i just really love for the sake of it so i'm just going to read this too Two individuals as different in appearance as they were united and objective had entered the chamber. The nearest to Targ was a thin, hatchet-faced man with hair and form borrowed from an old broom and the expression of a quiescent piranha. The Grand Moff Tarkin, governor of numerous outlying imperial territories, was dwarfed by the broad or armoured bulk of Lord Darth Vader. Like the pedant in me, like takes issue with both Lord and Darth being used before Vader, but <laughs> I'm gonna have to let that go. <laughs> but I just love that description of Tarkin. I love it. Old broom. That's so perfect. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Tarkin has this very striking appearance, and he is in contrast to Vader, right? Yeah, it's part of the point of those two characters side by side. Um, they kind of embody the two different sides of the Empire. Mm-hmm. Um, and you see that echoed, of course, with Hux and Kylo in sequel trilogy. Yeah, I, I do enjoy Alan Dean Foster's descriptions of characters' appearances. <laughs> yeah, no, he has a way with words. It's great. Um, anything else on the characters before we move on to the treatment of women slash sexuality? Well, I, I was going to get on to that because I am an Aunt Beru fan mm-hmm. and I do not love... Uh, the way Alan Dean Foster describes her in this. No, it's not good. Should we read out the quotes so people know what is particularly enraging about the treatment of Anne Returning the bulk container to the refrigerator unit, she placed the pitcher on a tray and hurried back to the dining room. Baru was not a brilliant woman, but she possessed an instinctive understanding of her important position in this household. She functioned like the damping rods in a nuclear reactor. As long as she was present, Owen and Luke would continue to generate a lot of heat. But if she was out of their presence for too long, boom. I feel so empowered right now. I don't... I'm really conflicted oh. because Biru was not a brilliant woman. I want to, like, scream. Yeah. I feel like it's just the like, arbitrary nature of the judgment. It's just, like, it's just not necessary. It's not necessary because it's basically comparing her to her husband. Like, it's not said... But if you're saying she's not a brilliant woman, you're kind of comparing her to the other characters. And it's like, oh, she's there as the mediator between these two male characters. So that's her function in their relationship. Um, And I just, Baru does not deserve this. Like, I went back to the, from a certain point of view, anthology that we got that has that story from her perspective Mm. after after reading this novelization, because I, I just love her and... I, I, it kind of makes me feel sad for Shmi as well because I kind of put Shmi and Baru together in terms of like characters, minor female characters in the series that are pretty mistreated yeah, and like not celebrated as they deserve because they do deserve better. Like Baru had dreams. She had an internal life of her own and she had potential of her own and she loved Luke so much and she was an amazing mother figure for him but like that wasn't all she could have been and i really feel like the narrative could explore that more yeah and like have a commentary on that but instead it's just kind of a given and it's somehow the fact that it's like well she wasn't a brilliant woman it's like that's the reason as Mm. opposed to like any level of i don't know their economic situation that they were in or yeah the fact that luke was dropped on her doorstep so she suddenly became an adoptive mom overnight yeah you know what i mean like it's not 
of course she didn't have the opportunities that a woman in a different situation would have had so it's sort of like whatever her dreams were they had to all be put on hold largely due to circumstances that she couldn't control yeah this is the sort of thing where i really like to think that if there were to be a new novelization of a new hope today it would be written very differently i hope Um, so because yeah i feel like you can just do so much better if we wrote it yeah if we wrote it star wars the new hope from aunt brew's perspective what if aunt brew survived (laughs) now that would be the what if brew went with obi-wan to old ron yes That would be a really interesting AU. I bet no one's written that fan fiction. <laughs> I just, you know, these women are heroes too, yeah. and I, I guess it just kind of reminds me of the fact that in, you know, the Rise of Skywalker. Sorry to come back to it, but it's like still, it's like our last reference point for the Skywalker saga. Even Padme wasn't mentioned. Yeah. So there was no chance for like Brea or Baru or Shmi. Yeah. It's just a kind of a bummer. <laughs> These, these women are heroes. Yeah, absolutely. There's just a pattern of devaluing these sorts of female characters and their contributions. And yeah, it's very, very frustrating. And I think even now we have Rey, we have a female protagonist, wonderful, great. But there's still so much further to go in terms of actually having a whole host of different female characters in different positions coming from different places and having different goals and dreams and what happens when they're all thrown together in a big messy soup you know and yeah i want to see that there is this unfortunate pattern of mothers like dying and not seeing their children fully grown or or to safety and not like through the fall of their own but like the, the choices that the narrative makes um and yeah like this idea of like well, once you become a mother, you give up everything else. So what Baru gave up, obviously Shmi was in very different circumstances, but she didn't have a fulfilling life of her own outside of, of Anakin. And um, what's his name? Um, Kleeg. Oh, Kleeg, yeah. Sorry. Yeah. It's like, what? I was going to say Owen, but it's not Owen, it's Kleeg. Oh, God. Um, yeah, no, that's very dysfunctional, Kirsty. <laughs> that, that's Star Wars. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. So that's still got work to do. So obviously this is from 76, but I still feel like canon hasn't, apart from that one story in that anthology. Yeah. Justice for Baru. Okay, we're going to start the Baru fan club. Yeah. The Baru Brigade. Baru's bitches. Yeah, Baru's bitches. Yes, that's amazing. I love that. Let's get jackets. Yeah. Like, will you design a logo, Kirsty? I will. It will okay. be a good one. Great. Do it. Post it to the scavenger. I'll, I'll commission Twitter. a talented fan artist. How about that? <laughs> yes. Amazing. Oh my god, I'll hold you to that. Um, so yeah, we have Baru, and then oh, do you remember the way that they introduced Cami? Yes, I do. I actually have quotes. Um, oh my god! Because basically, what you have in this novel is the women. They are either like oh, benign maternal figures, like Aunt Baru. Who, yeah we've spoken about that seductive sirens yeah or seductive wriggling wenches (laughs) it's like a parody it is like honestly i just yeah i laughed yeah okay so here's cammy she's not actually named for a while she's only named when she actually speaks for the first time before that she's just a girl so here we go the skin of the girl on his lap had been equally protected not luke's lap he doesn't it's not that exciting his friends yeah yeah. his friend's lap (laughs) And there was a great deal more of the protected area in view. Somehow, even dried sweat looked good on her. The girl on his lap stretched sensuously, her well-worn clothing tugging in various intriguing directions. 
That's the perfect encapsulation of my response. So there's literally nothing there about who Cammy is as a person. It's about her lack of clothing and her body and how it appeals to the men around her. Yeah. Because she's the only woman in that scene. So. Yeah. And sweat looks good on her, Kirsty. That's very important. Oh. Oh, so people who don't know, Cammy is who Luke is, is kind of envisioning himself being married to in the beginning of The Last Jedi's novelization. Yeah, that's right. So it's as if he had never left Tatooine and it's like presented as, oh, he, he, he missed the boat, right? Like, so he didn't go out there and change the galaxy. He, he stayed on Tatooine and didn't live a fulfilling life. And oh, he married Cammy. Oh, poor guy. Oh, fate worse than death. <laughs> yeah no poor cammy like it's just really demeaning <laughs> description and yeah it's slightly uncomfortable to read as a novel and it's at moments like this that you're just viscerally forced to remember that this book was not written with me in mind right yeah and of course even when we meet han it's like oh there's a wriggling girl on his lap too yep. who then is sent off because the men have to discuss things <laughs> Oh my gosh, yeah. And, you know, as we said before, Leia is... I mean, maybe from Alan Dean Foster's perspective, Leia is treated more respectfully because she's also cast as, like, a badass, competent woman. Mm. But we have all of this other stuff too. So it's, like, very important that you know how beautiful and appealing Leia is. Yeah. Like, right from the start, Yeah, Luke is just cast under her spell yeah it's really egged up i think um like we have this when luke sees leia's hologram for the first time the portrait formed within the box was so exquisite that in a couple of minutes luke discovered he was out of breath because he had forgotten to breathe if he'd forgotten to breathe for several minutes he'd be dead (laughs) it's like luke no 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 it's like come on you have actually seen a girl but not leia (laughs) the beauty it's just too much it's just too incomparable (laughs) there's like a bit later on where they're they're doing the mission to destroy the death star and obviously leia's back in the the room and there's this moment where they think that luke might be dead and then they cut back to the room and it's like oh, the senator was the most worried person. I need to find the quote, but it's like still noted that she's the most beautiful senator in the room. (laughs) Like even at this point where she's like terrified for her friend's life. Yeah. You have to know that she's, yeah, she's still beautiful. Yeah. And I feel like a good way to contextualize this for people who might struggle to see what the problem is. I I feel like most people listening to us would see what the problem is and understand. It would be like if they were describing like a male senator and they like rhapsodized for several sentences about how beautiful and handsome he was and how there had just never been a more beautiful, gorgeous man. And it would just be like, what the fuck? What the hell are you doing? Like, get on with the story, please. Yeah. yeah, like to an extent, it it serves the story purpose in that would Luke has been fa- would Luke have been as captivated by the whole idea of going on this adventure if it hadn't been a beautiful young woman? Perhaps not. So there's like a tenuous explanation there, but it's just lingered on to a ridiculous extreme. Exactly. It it doesn't need to be mentioned every single time Leia says or does something. Yeah. <laughs> I do feel like it gets better after Leia actually meets Luke and Han because at that point she actually has a voice and she becomes more of a person. 
but again no more so than is actually the case in the film yeah i think it's just because i i'm putting this like i said earlier hand in hand with splinter of the mind's eye which does a lot of the same things and potentially is even worse in places Mm. the portrayal of leia is really interesting and i i think carrie had a really fine line to straddle too because they all go on always about how leia wasn't a damsel and that was really subversive but of course the whole point at the beginning is that she is the damsel at least in luke's eyes and he has to go and rescue her and obviously once she's rescued as you say she instantly becomes more of a real character because she turns that on its head and she's like you know somebody has to save our skins yeah so it's it's intentionally subversive in that sense but not to the point where you feel like as they're describing her as this most beautiful person i don't think they're like doing that in a knowing way yeah it's just like we have to appeal to the young male readers yeah God, they're going to get a poster of Carrie Fisher after all this. Oh, <laughs> oh my God, poor Carrie—the thing she had to didn't deal with. Exactly. Yeah. I think it's knowing it's knowing all of that too. I think that puts a different spin on it. Yeah, and we also get um slightly extended dialogue where it's basically Han and Luke kind of competing over Leia in a very low key way. So it never actually turns into like a proper love triangle. I don't think, um, but I find it quite interesting. Could you read out the exchange I've highlighted, Kirsty? On leaving the cockpit, she saw Luke coming forward, and she spoke softly to him in passing. Your friend is indeed a mercenary. I wonder if he really cares about anything, or anybody. Luke stared after her until she disappeared into the main hold area, then whispered, I do. I care. Then he moved into the cockpit and sat in the seat Chewbacca had just vacated. What do you think of her, Han? Solo didn't hesitate. I try not to. Luke probably hadn't intended his response to be audible, but Solo overheard his murmur of good, nonetheless. Still, Solo ventured thoughtfully, she's got a lot of spirit to go with her sass. I don't know, do you think it's possible for a princess and a guy like me? No. <laughs> Luke cut him off sharply. He turned and looked away. Solo smiled at the younger man's jealousy, uncertain in his own mind whether he had added the comment to bait his naive friend, or because it was the truth. <laughs> Like, to give um, credit to Foster, I feel like this is, like, all done, like, in full awareness of what he's doing. Or at least I really hope that he realises that Luke saying, I do, I care, makes him look like a prat. Because it really does. (laughs) Yeah, it's just like Luke clearly doesn't really have any experience with women in relationships. And yeah, yeah, it's like overly earnest to the point where he's being, like, kind of nice guy. And... Han is the opposite of that. So it's these two guys talking about Leia when she's not there. Yeah. I mean, the fact that like Han hears him say good under his breath, it's like, it's it's clear that Luke likes Leia, but Han is like, as, as he says right at the end, kind of what I was talking about earlier, Han isn't ready to admit himself that he likes Leia in that way at this point, but he's going to have fun with it in the meantime and then use it to kind of mess with Luke. Yeah, I, I just find it hilarious that Luke hears Leia make that sort of comment and he has to make it about himself. Yeah. <laughs> He's like that throughout this whole story, though. Yeah. You know, for the first movie anyway, it's very much like, but what about me? <laughs> what about what I want? So, yeah, I know you're thinking about that hand guy, but you should be thinking about me and the fact that I do <laughs> care for you. I really, truly care. <laughs> like... Well, he does it later on. And again, you see this in the movie where Han is like, you know, they're at the base and Han's leaving with his reward. 
And then Le- Leia comes up to Luke and she's like, what's going on? And Luke's like, oh, I just can't believe Han, blah, blah, blah. He's leaving and he doesn't care about anything and he should care, like me. <laughs> I'm such a good guy. <laughs> and really, all that stuff, it just increases my hostility towards Luke and makes me feel more kindly inclined towards Han. Yeah. Well, Luke is so young at this point. He is, yeah. It's like, oh, Luke. <laughs> but yeah, I love Han Solo and I always have, so... And it, he's just as much of a screw-up, but like in a different way. Because he's older and he's like, he still hasn't figured out what he really wants and hasn't forged these... I mean, obviously now we have the solo movie that kind of recontextualizes a lot of stuff as to why Han is kind of standoffish and seems afraid to get attached to anyone apart from Chewie. Yeah. Um, but yeah, there's, there's hidden depths there. Exactly. And it's quite nice to see that being hinted at, albeit very briefly. Um, and then finally, um, as we near the end of this podcast, there's a very important <laughs> quote from the rebel base on Yavin that Kirsty might have put out as a tweet that became a tiny bit viral. So would you like to read out this very important quote, Kirsty? Yeah, so it's describing Luke getting ready to leave the rebel base and obviously everyone else around him is too. So Luke turned away from when, where one pilot left a mechanic. Possibly a sister or wife or just a friend with a sharp, passionate kiss. So many questions. <laughs> I had to read this several times to check that it was indeed <laughs> what I'd read. Oh my god, it's amazing. And I feel like I did post it on Twitter and everyone, a lot of people were like, what? But for lots of different reasons, because it depends on like what you're thinking about as you read it. Because for me, <laughs> when I was reading it, it just, it was so funny because it reminded me, and this is all the way from 1976, but it reminded me of so what, so much of what has been going on in the discussions around the sequel trilogy in terms of can we define a, roman- a romantic relationship as romantic? Or is there something else there? Or are they just friends? Or is it more of a sibling-like relationship? And the coyness, even from official sources in terms of like explicitly defining something to that degree it was just like oh it was there all along <laughs> apparently star wars even likes to do this with unnamed background characters yeah <laughs> it's just amazing to me so i'm approaching this from the point of luke's psychology so this yeah. is luke observing complete strangers and making assumptions about their relationship according to the fact that they have shared a sharp passionate kiss and it's like what messed up things have you experienced to think that people sharing a sharp, passionate kiss might be brother and sister. Well, this was, this was what was so interesting about some of the responses I got from Twitter, because people were like, oh, look, they're trying to recontextualize Luke and Leia. And I was like, no, that's what makes this all the more remarkable. This is before any of the Luke and Leia stuff happened. Yeah. This is before Alan Dean Foster had any inkling that they were going to be real, revealed as siblings. Yep. It's just a non-secretary, like it's not anything to do with the actual plot. It's just Luke looking around and speculating on the nature of some stranger's relationship. <laughs> they might be sisters and brother. They, they, they might be husband and wife. It's hard to say. <laughs> oh my God. 
it's it's beautiful i feel like if i ever had the opportunity to interview alan dean foster this would be like my number one priority to present this quote to him and be like okay can i have some context for how this came about yeah i just wonder what the intent is yeah (laughs) because like i said they're not named characters so you pointed out that at least it means that the female character is a mechanic yes that's true you know that's a it's a prototype rose tico in the making the only way it makes it worse because it makes me imagine luke looking at rose and (laughs) rose being involved in that ugly ugly fort and i don't like it much (laughs) but yeah no you're right that it is basically this book's equivalent of feminism to have there be a female mechanic so kudos for that yeah i'm just uh yeah, I'm going to have to take it, for, again, for my own sanity. Yeah, <laughs> I do have a lot of things in Star Wars that are like, what? I'm going to take this moment and turn it into like a Finn Rose moment in my head. <laughs> this is like a pre-crate thing. Yeah, and then you just have the yokel farm boy looking on and just not understanding <laughs> human relationships, and hmm. that's okay. Brother and sister? <laughs> oh my god. Amazing. Yeah. Star Wars is just... yeah. It's really something. It's truly wild, Kirsty. Um, yeah, so in my copy of the book, which is from 1978, it's vintage, there's a beautiful series of photo inserts in the middle. Oh, yeah, I wish I had that one. Yeah, like it is quite nice. Um, a collector's item, you know. No, it's not. It's really not worth <laughs> anything because they produce so many of them. So did you buy that on eBay? Or? Yeah, no, I did. I got a okay. um, double pack of this. Not a double pack in the sense that they're packaged together, but the seller was selling this and the novelization of Return of the Jedi. So I got them both okay. at the same time. Which is I'm tempted cool. to look for one, even though I have this version. <laughs> You're a true fan, Kirsty. You have that complete. I, I enjoyed it more than I enjoyed it more than I thought I would. I, I mean, if you've listened to the Splinter of the Mind's Eye episode, and if you've even listened to our The Force Awakens novelization episode, which was way back, I think we did that when we had uh, the girls from Who Talks First on. Mm-hmm. Um, you'll know we're not the biggest fans of Alan Dean Foster, <laughs> at least like we always enjoy him we always enjoy discussing his work so it's like it's it's, it's fine there's just yeah i'm happy he's worked on star wars because he gives <laughs> us a lot to discuss even his ray was like oh <laughs> yeah oh bless him i'm actually looking forward to revisiting the force awakens novelization like at some point in the future hopefully as part of this project because um yeah, I feel like I'd approach it very differently now, especially knowing what we know. So, yeah. Yeah, I was going to say, now that the sequel trilogy is wrapped up, there might be things in there that line up, whether intentionally or not, yeah. but line up a bit better or don't. It'll be kind of interesting to revisit some of those things. Yeah, exactly, with fresh eyes. So, basically, this picture insert section in my copy, the best part probably is it includes this great quote from George Lucas. So I'd just like to read to round things off. I think that anyone who goes to the movies loves to have an emotional experience. It's basic, whether you're 7, 17 or 70. The more intense the experience, the more successful the film. I've always loved adventure films. After I finished American Graffiti, I came to realise that since the demise of the Western, there hasn't been much in the mythological fantasy genre available to to the film audience. So instead of making Isn't It Terrible What's Happening to Mankind movies which is how I began, I decided that I'd try to fill that gap. I'd make a film so rooted in imagination that the grimness of everyday life would not follow the audience into the theatre. 
In other words, for two hours they could forget. I'm trying to reconstruct a genre that's been lost and bring it to a new dimension so that the elements of space, fantasy, adventure, suspense and fun all work and feed off each other. So in a way, Star Wars is a movie for the kid in us all. And yeah, I feel like that's just one of those iconic George Lucas quotes and I really like how that's included in something like this mass market paperback because that's how the movie and the story as presented in the novelization is being presented to that naive audience who knew nothing about Star Wars and yeah it's really cool. Yeah I love reading quotes like that from George because I do (laughs) I think he was so successful at what he set out to do like way beyond his own expectations right we all know. Yeah. Um, And yeah, it's a truly optimistic, hopeful, heartfelt story. Like, I know that w- when we get onto the Empire novelization, I haven't read it before, but I know we'll have to talk about how it compares with the movie. And of course, Empire gets a lot darker and you get more character work and it's exploring themes in a way that kind of subverts some of the optimism that you get in the first part of the story, just as most second acts do. Um, but a new hope works so well just in and of itself yeah right it's really complete as a story um and i think for that reason people can return to it over and over again and it's probably the reason it's a lot of people's favorite star wars film because it's so well-rounded yeah no i really wanted to watch it again before we discussed it for this episode i just ran out of time i only finished the novelization last night but i'm going to try and watch it tonight because it's really got me in the mood for it again oh awesome yeah no it's such a great experience and yeah it i just feel like this huge rush of joy when i get to the ending of the original star wars it's just nothing like it seeing all those like smiling happy faces it's just so unabashed and unequivocal about what it is that yeah i just love it star wars is oh i forgot to ask you Mm -hmm. when at the beginning did you watch the mcclunky version the mcclunky version yeah disney plus oh (laughs) no i didn't (laughs) know Oh, okay. I'm going to. I watched it on my old Blu-ray. I'm still okay. a very like old-fashioned physical media person in that respect. I'm like, I have the complete collection on Blu-ray, which is no longer complete. So, and I'm damn well going to use it. <laughs> yeah, we have that too. But yeah. I feel like now I have Disney Plus. I'm like, it's so easy just to go onto a browser yes. and set it up. <laughs> McClunky. And, and I, I've got to enjoy McClunky a bit more. Like, yeah. that's so new. <laughs> I've still never seen the McClunky version. I should change that. Oh, okay. Yeah, because yeah, you have Disney Plus now, right? I don't. That's why I haven't seen the McClunky <gasps> version. Oh, okay, sorry. No, don't worry. Okay. It's fine. I, I okay. will get it. I Basically, I have like two other big subscriptions at the moment and I want to get through yeah. more stuff on them before I get another one. So No, it's totally understandable. Yeah, But yeah, so next week we won't be discussing a novelization. We'll hopefully be discussing Ray, like along with your lovely emails we hope so remember to email your ray thoughts to us at scavengershorde at gmail.com and then after that hopefully we'll get on to the empire strikes back novelization which i'm quite excited for because looking back on the old google groups from 1996 someone like gave their verdicts on all the novelizations and they could describe the empire strikes back novelization like this well everybody seemed strange and had taken some rather noticeable liberties of the movie. Put it this way, it made me feel more kindly disposed towards KJA. I don't know what KJA is, I presume it's some Legends thing. But yeah, that makes me feel very intrigued about the Empire Strikes Back novelization. so bring it on. 
Okay. Yeah, that's the thing. Like, novelizations can go either way. So, like, we've enjoyed this one because it's so faithful. But if it goes another way, it's like, well, there's more to talk about there. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I'd like something a bit wild and strange. So, yeah, give me it. Yeah, it'll be especially interesting to compare that one with Splinter of the Mind's Eye. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I feel like I'm quite attached to Alan Dean Foster writing these novelizations as well. So. Yeah. And, like, how am I going to deal with a newcomer? Ooh. Yeah. And I'm still curious to hear in the wake of The Rise of Skywalker what Alan thought of that. Yes. Oh my and God. How closely he felt it adhered to his proposed treatment. Yeah. No, well, we have his fantastic 90s era website. So actually, let me check that quickly. You never know. Maybe. Like, is, does he have a Twitter presence or anything? No. Like, he doesn't have Twitter. I'd love to see a, a new interview with him where he kind of talks about the saga. <laughs> Oh my god, his website is amazing. And he has a discussion board on his website. So there's a discussion forum purely for Alan Dean Foster. Sorry, I just love him. He's amazing. I think Ryan Johnson has one of those as well. Yeah, he definitely used to. I'm not sure if it's still yeah. up, but he did have. Uh... Well, it was until very recent. Yeah. Like maybe like just before he did The Last Jedi. Yeah. Um, no, he has not spoken about The Rise of Skywalker, apparently. Okay. That's very sad. Oh. We need the verdict. Yeah, exactly. Come on the show, Alan. If you're listening to this, we want you. You'll be our first celebrity interview. We'd love to hear from you. So get in touch. Scavengersward at gmail.com. Um, but yeah, no, that was a lot of fun, Kirsty. And yeah, I look forward to the rest of these novelizations. Should be a good time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Read along if you can. I know it's an investment, but I don't know. We've all got time on our hands now. Yeah, definitely. We'll be doing more to say about what's coming up next. So hopefully that will give people more opportunities. So let's wrap it up here. I'm Rachel, and you can find me on Star Wars Nonsense on Tumblr. I'm Kirsty, and you can find me at Bastila Bay on Tumblr. And you can find both of us on Twitter at Scavengers Horde. Until next time, bye. Bye.